Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from the series, Behold Your King, a study in the Gospel of Matthew, where we see that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the God who saves, come to establish his kingdom, reveal himself to us, and provide salvation. Here's Pastor Nick. Please open in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We like to study through entire books of the Bible here at Whitefields. We go through them verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Part of our goal in doing that is to really receive the whole counsel of God's Word and to receive it in its context. So we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're currently in one of the greatest sections, not only in Matthew's Gospel, but in the entire Bible. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And so please open there to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be picking up where we left off in verse 21 today. So as you're turning there, let's pray and ask God's help in understanding and applying these things to our lives. Heavenly Father, we come to you just with hearts of expectation and hearts of desire that you would do a transformative work in our lives through the study of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we avail ourselves to you. Lord, we have open ears and open hearts. Help us to see, to understand, and to be transformed, and to go from here, change people, understanding your calling and empowered to do it. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. According to an article from the Washington Post, American high school students rank 15th in the world when it comes to scores on standardized tests. Now, 15th in the world, it's not terrible, but we're certainly not the best. We didn't even make the top 10. And yet, there is one category where American students did rank number one. When it came to the area of self-confidence and self-esteem, we were above and beyond everybody else. In other words, what we lack in smartness, we make up for in confidence, right? When American students were asked, how they thought they probably ranked in comparison with other people, overwhelmingly, Americans were sure that they were the best. And again, we may not be the best, but we're quite confident, we're more confident than anybody else, actually, that we are the best. I think that's a really interesting statistic because it highlights something that the Bible clearly teaches, and that is that for us as human beings, our assessments of ourselves are not always accurate. We have a penchant, if you will, for self-deception. We have a tendency to believe things about ourselves that are not exactly true. Now, one of the things the Bible tells us is that our heart, so human heart, is deceitful. In other words, our hearts sometimes tell us things that aren't true. They mislead us. Which is why, you know, Disney movies, pop songs, they tell us we should listen to our hearts, we should follow our hearts. But the Bible says, hang on a second, that's actually not a great idea. Because as human beings, our hearts can actually mislead us. We can be wrong in our assessment of how things are and how we are as people. So the question then is this, how can we know what is actually true? How can we know what's actually true about ourselves and about the world? And the answer to that is that we need something outside of ourselves by which we can measure ourselves. We need something outside of ourselves to tell us what we're really like and how we really measure up. A study from the Pew Research Group reported that a majority of Americans believe that when they die, they will go to heaven. 
The majority of Americans believe that when they die, they will go to heaven. And when they were asked why they think they will go to heaven, the most common response that came in was that people said, because I'm a good person. In other words, most people believe that in order to be right with God, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, what is required is that you must be a good enough person. But of course, that begs the question, how good do you have to be to be good enough? And how do you know if you've been good enough? Who sets the standard as what counts as good? And how do you know if you've measured up to that standard? What if, like those high school students I mentioned earlier, what if your assessment of yourself is not actually accurate? What if you think you're good enough, but in reality you're not? In the passage we're studying today, Jesus is going to address this question. In this section here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to tell us what it actually takes to be right with God. And what Jesus is going to show us is that in reality, all of us are much more flawed than we would like to admit or we would like to acknowledge. None of us is quite as good as we tend to think we are, but there's good news for flawed people like you and me because God has made a way to be right with him if you give yourself over to him. And if you do that, he will transform you at the very core of your being. So the title of today's message is How to Be Right with God. How to Be Right with God. And here's what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 30. Here's what we're going to see. That true righteousness transcends mere outward obedience. It requires a new heart and being transformed by the grace of God. Let me give you that sentence one more time. That's kind of our thesis statement. It's a whole message summed up in one sentence. And then we'll take that, we'll break it into two parts, and we'll use it as our guide and outline for studying through these verses today. So one more time. True righteousness transcends mere outward obedience. It requires a new heart and being transformed by the grace of God. So the first part of that, true, true righteousness transcends mere outward obedience. In Matthew chapter 5, Starting in verse 21, Jesus says this, You have heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, these verses are found in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a message that Jesus preached on a particular day to a large crowd of people on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And what the Sermon on the Mount gives us is not just a sermon that Jesus preached on one particular day, but it also gives us an example of the core message that Jesus was teaching and preaching as it says that he traveled throughout the region of Galilee teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. You see, Jesus was going around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven, that there is a way for you to be right with God and to experience salvation, to have life everlasting where there will be fullness of joy. Now, even though this life, for example, your life, might be filled with disappointments, pain, 
hardship, suffering. In God's kingdom, everything that is wrong with this world will be made right. That's the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Sin and sorrow, injustice and suffering, even death itself will be no more when the kingdom of heaven comes in fullness. And Jesus, the Messiah, has come to bring this about. That's the good news. And Jesus' message is that you can become a citizen and a member of this heavenly kingdom even now. You can experience its blessings and its benefits even now in part until that day comes when the kingdom will come in fullness and will experience it forever and in completeness. But here's the million dollar question, both for those people back then and for us today. Here's the big question that must be answered, and that's this. How do you gain access to the kingdom of heaven? How do you get into the kingdom of heaven? How do you become a member and a citizen of this heavenly kingdom? Now, the assumption that many people had back in that time is the same assumption that many people have still today. Like we talked about in that poll that I mentioned about people answering the question, why do they think they will go to heaven? The assumption is this, that the way to be right with God, the way to gain access to the kingdom of heaven is by being a good enough person. For the Jewish people specifically, they understood that access into the kingdom of heaven was based on how well a person obeys God's commandments, which were recorded in the Old Testament scriptures. That's the way they thought about it. Now, this is why the people were shocked as they listened to Jesus speak that day, because Jesus said something that caused them to have a collective gasp as soon as they heard it. Here's what Jesus said. It was the last thing we looked at in the previous section. Jesus said this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. See, when Jesus said those words, it caused a shock to go through the crowd, a collective gasp to radiate throughout the people who were gathered because, listen, they knew that there was no one in all the world, perhaps no one in all of history, who was more righteous when it came to obeying God's commandments and keeping the Old Testament laws than the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees were Jewish people who had dedicated their entire lives to studying the scriptures and obeying them perfectly. And so they would have wondered, how is it possible to be more righteous than a Pharisee? And also, in what way can Jesus say now that the Pharisees have actually fallen short of God's standard? Because after all, they obey every one of God's laws in perfection. These are the questions that Jesus is going to answer and address now as we move into this next section from verse 21 through the end of the chapter in verse 48. The essence of what Jesus is going to say from this point until the end of the chapter is this. True righteousness transcends mere outward obedience. You see, what Jesus is going to show us in these following verses is that every one of us is more sinful than we even realize, more flawed than we'd like to recognize, and that God's standard is actually higher than we might have previously thought. In this section, Jesus is going to give us six examples 
to build his case. Six examples. And in each of these examples that Jesus is going to use, he's going to be addressing a common claim that people tend to make in an effort to prove that they actually really are a pretty good person. Now, now we hear these same arguments and examples even today, which is why it's so relevant. So for example, one of the things that somebody often might say is, you know, I'm a pretty good person. After all, I've never committed murder, right? I've never killed somebody. Or somebody might say, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I've never cheated on my spouse. I don't sleep around. Another person might say, you know what? I'm a good person, and here's why. Because I'm a man or I'm a woman of my word. If I say I'm going to do something, I do it. Somebody else might say, the reason why I'm a good person is because I show kindness to other people. And Jesus is going to go through each of these claims that people commonly make, and he's going to respond to them. He's going to address them. And what he's going to show us is that none of us are actually quite as good as we tend to think we are. And then he's going to conclude this section by saying this. Here's how good you have to be if you want to be good enough. In other words, here's the standard of what it means to be truly righteous. And check out what he says. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, maybe you look at that and you say, hang on a second. If God says that we have to be perfect, well, I mean, come on, like, nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes, and you're exactly right. That is exactly what Jesus is trying to get you to see here in this section, that nobody is perfect, Everybody makes mistakes, and therefore all of us have fallen short of God's standard. All people have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and despite even your very best efforts, you therefore cannot save yourself. You need a Savior, and that's where the good news comes in, because Jesus is the Savior that you need. But in order to recognize and appreciate just how much you need this salvation that Jesus has come to bring, you must first realize just how incapable you are of making yourself right with God through your own actions. And so Jesus begins this section by saying, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now here, Understand, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, from the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. And then he says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, in each of these cases, each of these examples that Jesus is going to give, these six examples, Jesus is going to build his case, and his goal and his purpose is to show that true righteousness is about more than just outward behavior. True righteousness is also a matter of the heart and of the mind. The common assumption, of course, when it came to, and even today, when people think about this command to not commit murder, the common assumption is that this is merely a prohibition against physically killing another person. But here's what Jesus wants them to see. He wants them to see that this is about more than just your outward actions. 
God also cares about the thoughts and intents of your heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, we read one of the most important passages in the Bible. It says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In other words, sin isn't just about what you do outwardly. You can also sin in your heart. You can sin in your mind. And there's no human court of law which will convict you for hating someone in your heart. But God sees it, and he's the higher judge to whom all of us must answer. So to those who would say, I'm a pretty good person. After all, I've never murdered anybody. Jesus says, okay, well, but have you ever insulted someone? Even if you didn't say it to their face. Have you ever insulted someone? Even if you didn't say it to their face, maybe you didn't even say it out loud, but in your thoughts and in your minds, man, you let them have it. And you just relished it, right? You enjoyed it, just cutting them down to size, putting them in their place, even though you never said it out loud. It just happened in that imaginary fantasy conversation that took place in your brain. If you've done that, it's just as much a sin. And the wages of sin is death. You know, some time ago, I was driving here to the church. It was a weekday. I was coming into the church for a meeting here in my office. And um, so I was driving in from, from Longmont, and I was at the light out there at 119. If you guys know what that light's like, you know, it's sometimes infuriating, okay? So listen, I'm out at that light waiting to turn left. There's one car in front of me. I'm in the left turn lane. I'm waiting for the green arrow, right? So the arrow turns green. The car in front of me does a U-turn, and then I proceed into the intersection, turning left to come onto this road here that leads to the church. And as I'm turning left, a car comes from the opposite direction and cuts me off, right? They ran the, ran the light. They cut me off right in front of me and turned right. So, of course, I got mad, right? And what did I do? I laid on my horn, right? I let him have it with my horn. And then I shook my fist through my windshield at that person. Let them know, hey, you cut me off. I was angry. And as soon as I did that, I thought to myself, I sure hope that person's not going to the church <laughs> because that, that would be pretty awkward. And so we're driving down this road here. And then sure enough, right? They turned on their turn signal and they're pulling in here to the church. And my first inclination, my first thought was, here's what I need to do. I need to just like keep driving. I'll pretend, I'll pretend. I don't, I don't even know there was a church there. I don't, I don't go to church. I'm not, I don't go to that church for sure. But the problem was that I was late for my meeting that I was coming to, right? So I had no other choice but to pull into the parking lot and go to the church because somebody was waiting for me here. So I pull into the parking lot, like right behind this car with this person who cut me off that I honked at and like shook my fist at. And my, my goal was, I'll wait to see where they park and I'll park at like a different part of the parking lot and I'll try and like sneak into the church so they don't see me. But of course that didn't work, right? As soon as I got out of my car, they got out of their car and then we ended up like meeting right at the door of the church. And then I had to hold the door for them to come in. And I was so embarrassed, okay? Like, I apologized. And thankfully, that person was super gracious with me. And it was a very humbling experience. But here's my point. Sure, you've never killed anybody. But have you ever been angry at somebody 
because they cut you off at the light when you were turning left to go into the church? If you have, Jesus says that that is enough to send you to the fire of hell. Did you catch that? That's what he said. Now listen, it's worth noting that not all anger is sinful. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus felt righteously angry at times in his life. The Bible tells us that God is angered by evil. But what Jesus is talking about here is the attitude of contempt for another person. And Jesus' point is that all of us, without exception, you have felt these feelings before. You have had these thoughts towards other people at certain times. And you know what's really interesting? What Jesus says here, he's actually quoting from the Old Testament law. Did you know that? In the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, it says this, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. In other words, Jesus is not adding something to the law. He's not adding a higher level. He's not raising the bar. Jesus is merely reminding the people of what the law had always said. That sin is not just what you do outwardly. It's also something that takes place in your heart and in your mind. And the purpose of what Jesus is saying here is to show us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even me and even you. He says, verse 23, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now in each of these five sections, Jesus shows us the heart of the law, and then he gives us some practical application and personal examples. So when it comes to anger, here's what Jesus says. He states that harboring bitterness in your heart, holding on to resentment against other people, that is something that's incompatible with worshiping a God who humbled himself in order to reconcile us to himself. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul the Apostle tells us, he says, settle your disputes with others. Let go of your anger towards others. And then he says, why? Because if you don't, you are giving Satan an opportunity. Some older translations, they don't translate it opportunity. They translate it more directly with the word foothold. I know many of you are rock climbers, right? You know all about footholds. What does a foothold do? Well, it gives you an opportunity, right? To escalate, to go higher, to, to scale that wall, to make progress. And he's saying, if you hold on to this bitterness in your heart, if you don't settle your disputes, it's giving the devil an opportunity to wreak havoc or to cause destruction in your life or in the lives of others around you. Maybe you, there's someone who you need to be right with today, even if it means humbling yourself. You know, what's amazing to me about the gospel is this, that we have a God who humbled himself in order to restore our broken relationship with him, but he wasn't the one who did anything wrong. Do you realize that? He wasn't the one who messed things up. And yet, he was the one who reached out. And we get to respond to his actions for us by loving others in that way. So Jesus goes on to say, verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. 
Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Here on the topic of anger and grudges, Jesus is giving us some very practical advice regarding the usefulness of humility. He's illustrating the urgency of the situation, right? In other words, if there's an urgency in humbling yourself and being reconciled to others so that you don't lose all your money in court, how much more so is there an urgency to humbling yourself and becoming right with God? Because what's at stake with God, the ultimate judge, is not your money, but your soul. Jesus now moves on to the second of these six examples that he uses in this section. Here's what he says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, one of the Ten Commandments, right? He says this then, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, what Jesus is saying here is this. It's not just what you do with your body that God cares about. It's also what you do with your mind and which, what goes on in your heart. Maybe you've never had intimate relations with someone that you're not married to. But have you ever entertained those kinds of thoughts in your mind? Again, with this example, it's interesting. Jesus is not adding something new onto God's law. He's pointing out something that has always been there all along that the people seem to have overlooked. And that's this. Think about it. In the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment, the last one, it says, it's a prohibition. It says that you should not covet your neighbor's spouse. Coveting someone's spouse is not a physical action. Coveting someone's spouse is something that takes place in the secret places of your heart and your mind. Nobody sees it and nobody knows about it except for you and God. And the point right there in the Ten Commandments is that God sees those secret places, those thoughts and the intents of your heart. And God cares not just about your actions, but about your whole person the outward life and the inward life. You know, we live in a time when lustful images are more abundant than at any other time in the history of the world, right? You don't have to go looking for them. They will find you whether you want to see them or not. But what this is talking about is not accidentally seeing something and then letting your eyes bounce right off of it to the next thing. What this refers to is when you let your mind settle on something, when you let it rest on something and dwell upon it in a lustful way. And this isn't something that applies only to men. Women are also just as susceptible to letting their minds rest upon things which will cause them to sin in their hearts. Now think about it like this. There's an old saying that goes like this. You can't stop the birds from flying over your head but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. And in the same way, you might not be able to stop your eyes from seeing something. You might not be able to stop your mind from thinking about something. But by God's grace, you can stop your mind from dwelling upon that thing. Now, it's important to clarify something here, and that's this. Jesus is not saying that the physical act of adultery and committing adultery in your heart, he's not saying that those two things are equal. 
In other words, just like with anger, right? Jesus is not saying that being angry at someone is just as bad as murdering them and burying them in your backyard, right? Jesus' point is that God is just as concerned with our outward actions as he is with the inward motives of your heart. Now, there are people, the reason I bring this up is because there are people who have taken this passage and they've said to themselves, well, I've already sinned by committing adultery in my heart, by lusting after that person. So, since I've already sinned and it's all the same, I might as well just act upon it physically as well. That's not what Jesus is saying. You see, you wouldn't apply that to anger and murder, right? Like you wouldn't say, I'm so angry at my neighbor, so I'm just going to cut him up into pieces and, you know, bury him in my backyard. Now think about it like this. Um, Is all sin equal or not equal? Well, quantitatively, all sin is equal, right? A sin is a sin is a sin. And it only takes one sin to make you a sinner. And if you break the law at one point, the Bible says, you've essentially broken the entire law. So a sin is a sin is a sin. Quantitatively, all sins are equal. But qualitatively, not all sins are equal. Some sins are more egregious and have more destructive consequences than other sins. Certainly a sin that is committed in your heart is less destructive to you and to other people than a sin which you commit outwardly and physically. Both are enough to condemn your soul. But here's the thing. If you find yourself sinning in your heart, don't escalate it to the area of action. Rather, turn it over to the Lord right then. Repent of it before it creates more destructive consequences. The point of what Jesus is saying here in all of this is this. True obedience transcends mere outward, sorry, true righteousness transcends mere outward obedience. It requires a new heart and being transformed by the grace of God. When it comes to application for this example, here's what Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. Now, one of the questions that people often ask when they read these verses, they wonder, does Jesus intend this to be taken literally? Right? Like, does Jesus want us to cut off our hands and pluck out our eyes in order to prevent ourselves from sinning? Now, throughout history, there have been examples of people who did this, who mutilated their bodies in an effort to prevent themselves from sinning. My firm conviction is this, that here, Jesus is using hyperbole to teach us a point rather than giving us an instruction that's meant to be followed literally. And you might ask, Nick, how do you know that that's the case? Why do you say that this isn't supposed to be taken literally? How can you be so confident? Here's how I can be so confident. Because, think about it, in light of everything that Jesus has been saying in this section, if you were to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand, it wouldn't be enough to solve the problem. Do you see what I'm saying? If you cut off your right hand, you can still sin with your left hand. If you cut off both your hands, you can still sin with your your eyes. If you gouge out one eye, you can still sin with the other eye. You gouge out both your eyes, I don't know, you can sin with your tongue by the words that you say. 
And if you go all the way and cut off both your hands, both your feet, your eyes, your ears, your nose, your tongue, and pull out all of your teeth, it still wouldn't be enough to fix the problem because you'd still be able to sin in your heart and in your mind. That's what Jesus has been telling us throughout this entire passage. In other words, what we need is not fewer hands or fewer eyes. What we need is a new heart and a transformed mind. Now on a practical level, what Jesus is saying here is this. If there is something in your life that is hindering you rather than helping you, to walk with God, or to be salt and light in the world, whether that's a habit or whether it's a hobby or something else, if there's something in your life that is dead weight, it's holding you back and dragging you down, then what you need to do is take radical action. Cut it off, throw it overboard, get rid of it, Be willing to take drastic action for the sake of your relationship with God and for the sake of your witness for God. And I want to challenge you as we think about that and as you go from here today, ask yourself this question honestly and sincerely. Are there some things that you need to cut off from your life for the sake of your relationship with God or for the sake of pursuing the calling that you've received from God? You know, here in this passage, we've been talking a lot about sin. And Jesus in this passage, you could say he's kind of like the opposite of Oprah. Because Oprah's like, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. But Jesus is like, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, and you're going to hell. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, what a bummer of a message. Is that what I came here for this morning? I came here to be encouraged. And here's Jesus telling everybody they're a sinner and they're going to hell. What a bummer. Where's the good news? Well, I want you to remember where this passage we just studied fits into. This passage is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And what was the very first thing that Jesus said when he started the Sermon on the Mount was the first thing he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, The first step to being truly blessed, the first step to being really happy is recognizing and acknowledging that spiritually you are bankrupt. Why? Why is that the first step? Because that's the first step to entering into the kingdom of heaven, receiving the salvation that God has come to bring. In other words, the reason why Jesus wants to point out our sin is because Jesus wants to lead us to true happiness in him. What Jesus has been showing us in this section is that contrary to popular opinion, the way to be right with God, the way to gain access to the kingdom of heaven is not by earning it through your own righteousness. Because the truth is that none of us are truly as righteous as we might like to think that we are. And even if outwardly, You keep all the rules. Inwardly, you've still sinned in your heart and your mind at some point in your life. Even if you cut off all of your extremities, you would still fall short of God's glory. And that's why, see, what you need is not fewer hands and fewer eyes. What you need is a new heart and a transformed mind. And this is what Jesus has been leading us to realize throughout this conversation. And here's why it's so important. Because when the Hebrew prophets talked about the coming of the Messiah, what they foretold. They said, when the Messiah comes, God is going to establish a new covenant. 
And here's what he said, the prophet Ezekiel said, about this time when God would establish a new covenant and what he was going to do. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Rather than those old, dead hearts made of stone, God says that he'll give us a new and living heart, one that's sensitive and soft. And God promised that he would place his spirit inside of us to lead us, to empower us, and to enable us to do these things that he's calling us to do. In other words, our relationship with God's will and with God's commands and his desires, no longer will they be an outward imposition on our lives, but rather they will be written on our hearts and they will come from hearts transformed by the grace of God. And this is what Jesus came to do. This is why it says that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. You've been transformed from the inside out in the very core of your being. And then, having new hearts, we're able to pursue the transformation of our minds through the study of God's word, which is like pure water that washes over us and makes us new. As we behold Jesus, we're told that we're transformed from glory into greater glory. We become more and more like him in our actions and as we relate to others. So how do you receive that new heart? How do you become right with God? How do you gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven? We're told this in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then we're told how this free gift works and how you can receive it. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 3. It says, but now the righteousness from God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the grave were not just things that he did, but they were things that he did for you? He did these things for you in order to give you a new identity, a new heart, and a new power in your life so that now by the power of his spirit inside of you, you can be truly righteous. You can live a truly righteous life, not for your own glory, but for his. If that's you, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then I want to ask you as you go today, how will this new heart, this new identity, and this new power that you've received, how will it change the way that you live this week? As you go from here today, how will your heartfelt devotion to God manifest itself in your life as you leave this place and go out into the world? True righteousness transcends mere outward obedience. It requires a new heart and being transformed by the grace of God. Would you please bow your hands You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. 
If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.